Hello, everyone, and welcome to Topics in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didick, and this week we're talking a little more about things that last and things that don't, and a little bit about putting each thing in its proper place. So let's take a look. So it might be a little shorter of an episode for you today. We've just got three passages we're going to look at. But before we get into that, I did want to mention two things, actually. The first is that we will probably be taking a little bit of a hiatus at the end of June. It might be the end of the season. It might just be a short break for a little while of just as things have been piling up a little bit and having the time to do each of these episodes is kind of getting harder and harder. I'm, I'm recording this on Friday night and I have to you know, hurry up and get it put together by Sunday. A little bit of that was this past week and that's kind of the second thing I want to talk about is that this was launch week for my newest book. I think a couple of you already know that. Released a new book as part of a new series. It's called the Spirit Wind series. A new genre for me, which we might end up actually doing an episode about some of the reactions I've been getting before we take our breaks. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's it's more of a Christian kind of supernatural thriller suspense book. It's called A, a Fire to Kindle. It is available on Amazon for ebook and paperback. But that came out Tuesday, so I was spending a lot of time kind of getting that ready to go and making sure everything was in place for that to happen. And as I said, kind of got interesting mixed reactions to the book from my early readers. So that was kind of a little bit of a a little bit of a surprise, I guess. Um, like I said, we might talk about that and how that, to me, gave kind of a window into at least a corner of Christianity today that I think would be interesting to talk about. But because of that and other things going on with jobs and things like that, um, as I said, it's been kind of being more and more difficult to get this podcast put together. So like I said, I want to run it through at least the end of June. We might take a little bit of a break just to kind of take a break and take a breath a little bit, but probably not going to be gone for very long if we do. I might get to the end of the month and say, you know what, never mind, everything's okay and we'll keep going, but I will announce that more formally. <laughs> if it is going to be the last episode for a while, I'll let you know. For now, we've got another couple weeks till the end of June here. And today, as I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about things that last and things that don't because we talked about, you know, trying to bear fruit that will last and focusing on kind of the fruits of the spirit was where I intended to go with that. I realized as I was putting the, you know, editing it together that maybe that wasn't as clear because I kind of like at the end just suddenly jumped into the different situations you find yourself in. What is the kind of fruit you're looking for? And kind of what I was alluding to, and you probably picked up, but for those that either didn't listen to it or maybe this, like I said, I, I kind of jumped ahead kind of rapidly in that episode. The idea being that oftentimes we're going through life looking for the material fruit, the success, the pay raises, potentially the promotions, the accolades, every, you know, everything physical, physical manifestations, I guess, of fruit in every situation and every conversation we have and you know every meeting we have and all these things they were kind of looking for something tangible to come out of it and what I wanted us to do or kind of the shift I was you know advocating there was that like go into all these situations looking for the fruits of the spirit instead of love joy peace patience kindness gentleness faithfulness and self-control like try to grow those fruits in yourself and in the world if you enter into a conversation where the tone of the conversation is kind of overwhelm or depression or sadness or those sorts of things like try to bring joy and peace and kindness if there's anger or hate or misunderstanding you know, try try to bear those fruits 
in your situations instead of how can I turn this to my advantage or, you know, just, just focusing on what can I get out of this? Even if it's like, well, I want to commiserate with the people that I'm talking to. So I, you know, so I'm one of them. So I'm friends with them. So they, you know, they understand that I sympathize, which it's, it's good to sympathize with people to not sort of cast their concerns aside. We know God doesn't do that with us. We're told to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. In the same way, we want other people to be able to cast their cares on us because we care for them in a very real way, not just a, I care about you because I want to convert you, which is, you know, we should be doing that, but actually care about them and care for them. And one of the ways we can do that is to try to bring those fruits of the spirit into the conversations and situations we have. So that was kind of the, the movement I tried to make there. And I realized, as I said, that that maybe kind of happened rapidly. And so we're going to continue with that idea in a little bit of a different way today. And this kind of came about actually in response to criticism against prosperity gospel. Now, I'm not necessarily an advocate for that. I, I think there is room in scriptures where God kind of does promise in both the Old and New Testament more than just, I guess, spiritual blessings. There's, there's plenty of times where the promises he's giving are very clearly physical tangible things. Okay. So that's in there. But at the same time, obviously, if you've been listening for any length of time, you probably know that should not be the focus of the gospel we teach. It should not be the focus of our spiritual lives is just to do it for the material gain that we have. And that's what we're kind of getting into today. But at the same time, even though that isn't the goal, you know, Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness And then if you do that, if that is the focus, if that is what you're pursuing honestly and earnestly, then all these things that you're worried about, food and clothing and shelter and all these things will be added to you as well, as well as the kingdom of God. So there's that there. But at the same time, what I don't want to happen is that those Christians who do have material blessing, that we kind of turn against them And act as though they only have that because they're actually being worldly, because they're focused on the wrong thing, etc. And for those who do have material blessings, this episode should also speak to you in the vein of, you know, don't let yourself be distracted or kind of turned away, I guess, because of these things. Because there's an attitude and a posture we need to have with the things in this world. And so our main verse, our main passage is coming from 1 Corinthians To kind of lead into this, the context of this is Paul is talking to the Corinthians about if you're married and especially if you're married to another believer or even if you're married to an unbeliever, I think that's in this whole passage here. If you're married to an unbeliever already when you you come to Christ and they're willing to stay with you, go ahead and stay together. You don't have to get divorced. If they don't want to stay with you, this is interesting though. Paul writes that if you are already married and within the marriage come to Christ... And your spouse does not want to stay with you because of your conversion. You are permitted, according to Paul, to get a divorce. Okay, it's one of the few exceptions that we see in scripture of when divorce is allowed. This is not talking about you are a believer in Jesus and you're dating someone who is not a believer. If you are not married yet, you do not stay together. He's very clear about that. So anyway, this is this is the context leading up to um, this verse 29. So let's start again. He says, starting 29 through 31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. 
Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And so what I want us to focus here is that whatever it is we have, the things we have, our home, our cars, I have you know my computer, I have my recording equipment, um, I have mountain bikes that I ride, we have all these sorts of things. They're material things. We you know we bought I think a pretty nice house. It's not amazing. It's not you know a mansion or anything like that. It's you know it's livable. Everyone who comes by makes the comment of oh it's a really nice fixer upper. And my wife and I kind of look at each other like, well I mean yes, but it's also just a nice house. <laughs> we felt we could say it is nicer than it's a nicer house than some people have. It's not as nice as others, but it's nicer than some. And so we have all these things. And we have our library with all our bookshelves and all our books that we've been purchasing at book sales and things like that. The point that I want to make with this is that it is okay to have stuff. Okay, we know we kind of know that and we say that, but there can come a point, I think, where we start to say, well, that's a little too much stuff or that's a little too nice of stuff. There doesn't seem to be any sort of real agreement on how much is too much. And it's more of just a, we know it's too much when we see it. And I kind of want to push back against that a little bit because anything can be too much if you're not living in the spirit of this first Corinthians verse that we just read, right? Any house, if it becomes the focus of your life, if it becomes something that you treasure, if it's something that if it burned down, you would be undone a little bit, is too much. It doesn't matter if it's a $50,000 house or if it's a $2 million mansion. We kind of come to this point where we try to say, no one needs that much house. But that's not really what matters. This verse says in it, whatever you have, if you buy something, buy it knowing it is not yours to keep. Okay. If you use things, if you use a car to get around, if you use a laptop, to record podcast episodes or whatever it is you do. If you use a bike to ride trails or ride on the road, if you use a guitar to make music, if whatever it is that you have or buy or use, use it as if not engrossed in it. For this world in its present form is passing away. To be engrossed in it, the Greek word there, as used in the Bible, the King James actually translate as abuse, which is interesting. The definitions are to use much or excessively or ill, to use up or consume by use, or to use fully. So we could even take that to the extent of like, use it to a point only where you could give it to someone else and it would still be functioning. Think about that for a minute. The things you have, if you use them as though not engrossed in them, you don't use it till its bitter end. You know, we may not quite advocate a lifestyle of, turn over everything you have, only use it for a while and then give it to Goodwill or Salvation Army or something to, you know, sell on. We don't necessarily have to go there, but that might not be a bad place to go. You know, if you're if you're to the point where you need to use and wring every single day of usage out of an item and then you throw it away, is that saying something about your state of mind, about your belongings? I don't know. I'm not saying it certainly it definitely is, but there's an opportunity to kind of examine your heart in this and say, am I using these things as though engrossed in them or do I use them to almost a level of abuse of them? 
to where it is mine, it is only mine, I don't want anyone else to use it. Why is it that you get everything out of a thing and then just throw it away? Can you not, when it is still has some life left in it, give it to someone else who might need it as well? Just a thing to think about. Like I said, we're not going to build a whole theology off of this or a whole way of living. But there's a couple other verses I want us to look at. And the other kind of series of passages is one that speaks again to our topic of sin from a couple of weeks ago now, how we said that there are things that are sin regardless because it goes against the nature of God by its very nature. Sexual sins are an obvious one. That anything outside of the covenant marriage, the covenant union, where the two become one flesh that God has designed from the beginning, anything outside of that is a sin. There's no way to sleep with a prostitute in a way that glorifies God. It just doesn't. Okay, that's like I said, that's kind of an obvious one, but we'll use it as an, as an example. But other things where it may lead some people, again, we're, we're worried about what is your intent? What is your heart behind the motivation behind the things you do? Why do you act and think the way that you do? What's, what's at the base of that? Is it distrust of God? Is it disobedience to God or not? And so this passage of verses, again, we need to be careful how we use it and how we wield it. But here's what it says. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What he's saying here is food. Okay, we do an easy one, we'll pick food. There are people who have problems with food that can be kind of obvious. We don't talk much about gluttony these days. At least a lot of churches don't. We're very quick, as I just did, to jump to the sexual sins as one of them because it's very easy and very obvious and very wrong. But we don't talk about the sin of gluttony as much. For those who don't suffer from that temptation, food is not a thing. We've talked about before where Paul talks about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. There are people who at that time had an issue with meat they're sacrificed to idols because they were recent converts or whatever it was that it bothered their conscience that food had been sacrificed to an idol that was not God. And so in their minds, that was still a stumbling block for them that they still retained some belief in the power of false gods. So in a very similar way, there are people who stumble with the false god of stress eating, of eating to gain comfort, where we can say that food is only fuel, but that's not really true. It can be for some people. And so for them, what food they eat is not very much of a temptation. They eat just what they need to to get calories in their body and electrolytes and nutrients and whatever it is just to be able to function throughout the day. There are those of us who enjoy good tasting food, whether it's because it's sugary or because it has complex flavors, things like that. You are allowed to enjoy food. You're allowed to enjoy a well-made plate of food. If you try to just simply set up a rule 
of I cannot eat this or that because it's too indulgent for me to eat these things. That has an appearance of wisdom with its self-imposed worship of healthy foods, quote unquote, false humility of I don't indulge myself by eating those things and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Why? Sensual indulgence is a heart issue. If you enjoy a thing because of the quality of its make, let's say, because it took effort, because it took creativity, creativity is a godly thing. Someone who can take all these various ingredients and with skill and dedication and creativity, put them together into a flavorful dish, that can be a God-honoring thing. God gave them the ability, the skill, to cook really good food. It can dishonor God to throw that food in the garbage and say, I will only eat bread and drink water because that's all I need in order to survive. I'm going to just do the bare minimum. There's another passage we looked at. I don't have a call up here where he's telling rich people, you know, enjoy what you have knowing that it's destined to perish because God gives us things for our enjoyment. So go ahead and enjoy it, but enjoy it as though it was passing. Don't become obsessed with it. Don't be like, if you're in a place where the only food you have available is just what's enough to sustain you, then eat it. Don't turn your nose up at it because, oh, I only eat at five-star restaurants. I won't eat with you at a restaurant you like to go to because I don't want to indulge myself. That's not really going to help. But those who don't have an issue with those things, don't judge them because they're able to be around it. Because maybe for them, they're able to enjoy those things as though they didn't enjoy them. You know, they're not obsessed with the thing. They just enjoy it from time to time. So all that getting to this point of your attitude toward the things that you use, the things that are consumed, food, clothing, you know, this computer, I just had the battery replaced on it and the keyboard was, I believe, replaced as well. Some of the keys still double type. <laughs> I still will sometimes push the letter B and two Bs come out, not necessarily right next to each other. So this laptop is passing. At some point, I will need to get a new one. The attitude I need to have is that if it were lost, broken, or stolen, that that would not derail me from choosing holiness when it needs to be chosen, which is all the time, but you understand what I'm saying. I need to use this thing as though I'm not obsessed with it. And that's that's the movement I want us to get to. And that's, again, goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier is, is getting our minds away from the things of the earth and onto things of heaven. So what's another way we can do that? What's another way to approach this? And this is our final passage for today. Revelation 21, verse 21. This is John describing the new heavens and the new earth, the, the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And he says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. Now, there's two ways to understand this verse. Either metaphorically, where John is trying to describe something that he doesn't necessarily understand because he's limited by the time he lives in. A lot of revelation probably needs to be understood that way. A lot of what John is describing are not necessarily real creatures in the sense that they are literally as he described them, but they are things that he doesn't know how to describe because they didn't have those sorts of things back then. One of the easy ones is imagine him trying to describe a helicopter. All he has is animals and insects. Okay, so it's a it's a thing with great wings that make a roaring noise 
And if, especially if it's a gunship, it has a stinger, you know, that would be a minigun to us. We would describe it as, you know, a combat helicopter, an Apache or a Cobra or something like that. We know what it is because we have it. John didn't have those things. So a lot of, a lot of what he's describing could be literally translated. Maybe there are these things with, with different kinds of heads and faces and bodies, or it's him trying to describe something he doesn't understand what he's seeing. And so heaven or this new city as well could be metaphorically that whatever the gates look like, and it's interesting that, you know, we talk about the pearly gates and we generally imagine in our heads actually only one gate, usually on a cloud, St. Peter standing there guarding them, deciding who gets to go in and who doesn't. Not all how it works. We're not going to get into that today, but this new city actually has 12 gates and each one of them is a pearl. Is it a literal pearl? Is it something that is so fantastic and beyond description that the only thing he can think of is it kind of makes me think of a pearl. It's, it's metaphorically the same as a pearl to me in the same way that the city streets, are they actually of gold or is it just, it's so brilliant and pure and you know, whatever that the only thing he can think of is the purest gold you can imagine. That's almost pure as transparent glass. Or is it literal? There's these gigantic, huge pearls that we'll go in and out of in these gates. And that gold is of such little value in this new city that they use it as pavement. Think about what we pave our streets with today. If it's not some super highway, you know, if it's just a back road, it's gravel, it's dirt. It's, you know, one of the most common and useless, no, not useless things, obviously, because we make dirt roads out of it and plants grow out of it and things like that. But until you start refining it into potting soil or things like that, dirt is pretty cheap. In the new city of God, gold is so valueless, it's the same as dirt. The purest gold you can imagine has the same value as dirt, regardless of which method you use, whether you think of this metaphorically or literally. Imagine the city that we are destined for, those of us who are in Christ, is so far above what we could possibly own here on earth that at its base, the cheapest thing it has is the purest gold you can imagine. Okay, so that's when we start to look at these people who have very large houses, say, or very expensive cars or whatever it is, whether it's you that has them or you see someone that does have them. The question that needs to be is, do we realize that this thing that we are spending our time and money and effort on right now, one day will be so worthless. The thing that we have promised as an inheritance for us is so much more valuable that when Jesus returns, how can we imagine that we might say, well, wait, let me go and get this first. This thing that's in my house, whatever it is, is more important to me than what is waiting for me in a city where the purest gold you can imagine is used as pavement. No matter what it is you have, there is nothing, absolutely no material thing here on earth that is worth the reward that's waiting for us in heaven. I mentioned this in a previous episode where you know it's, it's hard sometimes. We don't seem to talk about it a lot because we don't know what it is. We, you know, it might be a house. We know there's, there's rooms being prepared for us. What exactly that means or what it will be for us to live in eternity in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit everywhere, 
we need to keep in our memory and keep in our attitudes that there's nothing here on earth that can possibly compare. No matter how nice and extravagant and luxurious it is here, it will be nothing in heaven. And so dare I say that some of these attitudes we have of if someone tries to take something from me, I will kill them. <sighs> Again, we don't have time to really go into every nuance because I understand the the threat to our lives, to the lives of our children, potentially or our spouses. If someone's breaking into our house, maybe they're here to kill us. I have a hard time with that because I'll say this really quick just to, to draw out the point that the number of stories of people breaking into a house with the intent of murdering the people in it, I don't think happens as much as we worry that it will. I don't, that's so why I haven't looked into this, but my thought is that the vast majority of break-ins, they're trying to steal stuff. They're trying to steal your valuables. And is that worth their life? This stuff we have here on earth that, you know, and it's very possible, like I said, I'm not trying to take anything away from anyone. If you've, if you've had your house broken into, I don't want to minimize the violation of that. But as a philosophical, I guess, endeavor of going through life with this attitude of, if you try to take something from me, I will do everything in my power to prevent that from happening because this is mine and you can't have it. Is that in light of how we're to view things here on earth? And that's an extreme example, but certainly in the sense of giving things up, let's say we only go to the extent of saying, do you have stuff in your house that you don't really use that has life in it that you could either give to someone who needs it or donate it to Goodwill or Salvation Army or whatever it is in order that someone else might be able to benefit from its use. You may be cheaper for them than having to buy a brand new one. That's something that you'll need to ask yourself, test your own heart, your own thoughts and attitudes, and answer that for yourself. I can't answer that for you. What I do want us to think about is what is it that we value? Why do we have that high of a value on it? And does it really truly have that much value considering what's waiting for us in heaven? I'm willing to suspect the answer is no. That's all I have for today. Again, going into next week, probably not knowing what we're going to be talking about. We may, like I said, kind of discuss some of the reactions I had to my most recent book just from the standpoint of what does it seem to say about our perception of Christianity and how it operates. I think there's some interesting things to mine out of that. So maybe we'll do that next week. Until then, keep the faith and keep it fresh. Music